Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Sip on the go with a Starbucks iced shaken espresso. Our signature roast, shaken with ice, then finished with a splash of milk. Customize it to match your style on the Starbucks app. Make today a good day. At the Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com slash workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. It's time to let it roll. Today we're bringing back biographer Paul Trinka to talk about Starman, his biography of the late, great David Bowie. As always, you can access our YouTube playlist and learn more about the episodes on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. This week, Paul and I talk about the amazing career and surprisingly sympathetic personal life of Davy Jones, a.k.a. David Bowie, a.k.a. Major Tom, a.k.a. Ziggy Stardust, a.k.a. The Thin White Duke, etc., etc., etc. We'll discuss the many transformations and amazing accomplishments of the last great English rock star. So pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome back to the Let It Roll podcast. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. And once again, we've got Paul Trinka with us, author of a book on Brian Jones, a book on Niggy Pop. And now we're going to talk about his book on David Bowie, Starman. Paul, welcome. Hi, it's great to be here, Nate. Good to have you back. So you wrote this book in the middle. You wrote the Iggy book first and the Brian Jones book most recently. And, and Bowie came out about almost eight years ago now. Gosh, amazing. Okay, right, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> so um, comparing these three subjects, Brian Jones, obviously, other than you know his massive accomplishment at forming the, the Rolling Stones, but otherwise was just a complete disaster. I mean, a tragic tale. Iggy Pop overcame things, but was a long series of disasters, really, until he turned uh, his life around in the 80s. David Bowie, on the other hand, had lots of failure and struggle, but, I mean, a success machine, a decade-long run at, as one of the great you know, rock artists, another decade as one of the biggest superstars in popular music. What's the difference when you're dealing with uh, subjects that struggle versus subjects that succeed so much? Well, I, I guess one part of the difference is what Iggy rather disparagingly termed as David's executive qualities. I think that was a time when they were estranged. I mean, that's what he told me. And, um, you know, he, he just thought David was well-organised. In a way, a rock star, star perhaps shouldn't be. And, you know, I think when I was a kid, I had part of that. Um, uh, you know, I shared those kind of misgivings. He just seemed to be a little bit too knowing, and of course, I was wrong, you know, because it was really when I did the Iggy book that I suddenly the scales fell from my eyes. And I thought, no, no, you know, with David, those ex executive qualities, they were something he worked on that were an intrinsic part of his art and enabled him to continue his art for longer. But yeah, very, very different character. And, um, you know, in a way, you know, far more kind of multidimensional and complex, not necessarily, you know, in a... Uh, not all at one time. He just obviously, as we know, went through many different phases, but he was much more of a chimeric character, somebody harder to nail down. So, you know, a good old, um, a good old subject to get dug into. Yeah. And I really enjoyed uh, reading the book and especially, you know, reading it. I think I read it when it came out pretty quickly just for, you know, a fun page turner about a rock star but I, after he passed away i went back and and reread it more thoughtfully and my appreciation for him really has deepened and and uh 
I want to talk about sort of three themes in this interview because there's just too much to cover in one hour with David Bowie. But I want I want to talk about his personas. The chameleon aspect is obviously like the most famous thing people talk about. And I want to talk about his partners, both musical and business, and and cover those three issues. And first, let's talk about the personas. Like, do you see what's the common thread between his struggles to establish himself in the '60s? his triumphs in the 70s, and then again in the 80s and 90s, he sort of struggled to connect with his audience despite having enormous popular success in the 80s. That's a very complex question, but I, I guess I should start tackling that by re-talking about the, the central premise of the book, which I think was what was unique about the book, and, and I believe gives us a kind of the key insight into to David, especially compared to Iggy or Jimmy and, and Brian Jones, is my take on David, he's, he wasn't born a talented artist. He wasn't born as a talented musician. He made himself into a talented musician through sheer hard work and inspiration, you know, and a kind of artistic bravery. So I think at the bottom of everything, the, you know, it's a transformation of David Jones into David Bowie. And I think people often don't get that. They talk about his different persona, but they don't realise that David Bowie himself is a persona. I mean, I remember even about five or ten years ago in the story in Rolling Stone, they talk about stripping away the persona to reveal the real David Bowie. Well, there isn't a real David Bowie, it's David Jones. And so I think what is amazing about him is the transformational quality of... He was a kind of ambitious kid who loved Little Richard. He loved Elvis Presley. He was growing up in Bromley, you know, which is the epitome of the suburbs. And he wanted something better. And he you know, wasn't satisfied with his life. He wasn't satisfied with himself. But he had a quality of kind of ambition, first and foremost, and taste, you know, first and foremost. And he painstakingly made himself into this talented person. But it did mean, you know, that how he made his art was always different to everybody else's. It was always responded to those around him in a different way from other people. But I think right at the beginning is the, you know, the sort of central essence of Bowie is the work it took to make Jones into Bowie. And then the work it took to maintain this Bowie persona or carapace or facade, whatever you want to talk at, talk about. And that is... That is central. And, you know, people have challenged it in reviews. Some people don't believe it. Obviously, they're wrong. Um, you know, in one of his last <laughs> interviews for Mojo, he, he told us exactly about that, that he was jealous of people like Mark Boland because they danced out of the womb, as he said, talented. He didn't, you know. And I think the genius of Bowie, above all else, is to to kind of not be satisfied with just being David Jones, to want to go for something greater and transform himself. And I think that's his foremost... That's the artistic achievement that formed, that underpinned everything that went on. And, and, and that in itself makes him fascinating. And of course, it's one of many aspects. Yeah. And, and I mean, grappling with Bowie and listening to prepare for this, I've been listening to his whole catalog from beginning to end and, and took several long road trips, luckily, and had the opportunity to do that. And I really felt that your book captured the moment at which his inspiration went from workmanlike to truly inspired with the hunky the songwriting on hunky dory and and you tell a great story about uh the producer and how he was looking at it as something that wouldn't be that oh this will be fun to work with david again you know it won't be a lot of pressure because you know he's just a a middling artist and then he hears the material and he realizes that he's working for big stakes exactly i mean that's thrilling to me actually when you because you're kind of living through it in a, a kind of vicarious kind of way aren't you I guess as a writer and you're thinking about it all and you're writing about some stuff and you're talking about it and you're you're pointing out why it's good but you're not necessarily inspired by it you know I personally wasn't inspired by the Space Oddity album and then with Hunky Dory he's dreaming these songs you know he's 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 got to a level through hard work he's He's learned to play the piano, which makes sense his songwriting off in a completely different direction from the previous album. And he's dreaming these songs. You know, you pretty things, the song 
he woke up with and he called his producer bob grace and they demoed it that day and if you hear the demo it's pretty much identical you know to the to the final take and isn't that just amazing to get from the point where it's really really hard work and you're struggling to keep it together and then suddenly the music's pouring out of you and i find that more inspirational than if he just came out of the womb as a talented guy you know the way that he 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 re-engineered his kind of essence to be able to to be instinctive and to be inspirational and you know and because he'd made himself instinctive and inspirational that meant he was always ready to take risks in the way that let's say Iggy might not be because with Iggy it was instinctive and then it's hard to abandon your instinct but if you've if you've made yourself and you've kind of forced yourself to change and you can force yourself to change again yeah and and I think that is really the absolute key to Bowie. I mean, you know, and and his transformations, even before he was Bowie, when he was still Davy Jones with the King Bees and then the Manish Boys in the lower third, you know, first he's imitating the Pretty Things and then he's trying to do more soul and then he's imitating The Who pretty blatantly, Mm. you know, and then he's uh, imitating Anthony Newley and, you know, he keeps trying these new personas and I think the big difference between uh, the 60s failures and the 70s triumphs is that, once he conceives of the Ziggy Stardust character, that's an original creation. He's not imitating anymore. And he's imitating, and it was just, I really thought you told the story well of how brilliantly, I mean, he has this beautiful album in the can with Hunky Dory, or that he's working on, and at the same time, he's writing Ziggy Stardust and conceptualizing that whole thing. And and I, and I, I want to tie in his partnerships, because without Tony DeFreeze on the business side, is that the right pronunciation, DeFreeze? Yeah. Yep. With DeFreeze on the business side, who, for all his flaws, was a visionary uh, rock manager. And then Mick Ronson and Tony Visconti on the musical side. Visconti drops off after um, the Man Who Sold the World album, but Mick Ronson comes back to him. Without those two partners, you know, Bowie couldn't have pulled off the Ziggy Stardust. And it's just sort of amazing how he had persevered at his ambition to be a rock star, even though he drifted away from it here and there, but he had attracted these people. And when it all snapped into place, I mean, it's really exciting to read the book at that point, the way the pieces just snap into place. And I, I noticed, I think the last time we talked, you're from Hull, which is where <laughs> Mick Ronson is from. So tell us what's your take on the Mick Ronson relationship? Well, it's interesting because I did, meet Mick Ronson he was one of my first interviews when I worked for International Musician magazine and you know he was a legend around Hull um you know we'd all I'd gone to see Woody Wooden see with U-Boat when I was a kid uh, you know Bowie was just a bit before my time and you know Ian Boulder would be around the place Trevor Boulder would be around the place and and Mick was a legend and you know I I, I felt like I almost wrote a, a Mick biography you know in there because i went to see so many people to find out about him because i was fascinated by him he bought his first guitar his marshall stack from a music shop where i used to hang out but what's great about mick ronson is he you know bowie needed mick but mick needed bowie you know the whole point about mick is he'd learned to become the best guitarist in hull and then he stopped that was good enough you know he kind of had, had, had lifted all that stuff from jeff beck and then he just cruised from then on. He stayed in his comfort zone. And it was Bowie who got Mick outside of his comfort zone. And that was the place where Mick could make great art. And incidentally, of course, David was outside of his comfort zone as well. So some of the bits I found most thrilling at the time when, you know, they're arranging Hunky Dory and and Ronson's runner is doing the... Um, you know, the musical arrangement, his hands are shaking. He's just so nervous. He's never done this before. You know, fuck you know, what am I supposed to do here? And and then when we're out of our comfort zone and we're just, you know, casting around, that's that's when we're not going to fall back on the tried and tested. We're going to come up with new stuff. And that's what that's what Mick did. David needed Mick. You know, I mean, there's times when I've spoken to Visconti about the man who sold the world when he was estranged from Bowie. And he, you know, was kind of saying it was more a Ronson and Visconti album. than it was a Bowie album. And in fact, when we said that in Mojo, uh, then I think, uh, I think then that David actually refused to talk to the magazine for about 10 years. 
bit of an incidental gossip for you there. And, yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, th- th- there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of value judgments there. There's a lot of complexity there about the art and the songwriting and who it belongs to. And yet, ultimately, having grown up as somebody who thought that Rono did it all, you know, now I've come to the decision where I think, no, that was David, because he's kind of in David's studio. He sketched out the artistic place. He he put the people in place and he he kind of programmed them, not, not programmed them. He gave them he just gave them space to create and freedom to make stuff that wouldn't have happened without him. So at the top of it all, he was kind of directing it, even in the most subtle kind of way. So it's a different form of creativity from what we know. You know, sometimes it would be conventional creativity, you know, sit at a piano and write a song. And at other times it's just like curating a space. It's like sampling a space, taking different stuff and putting it together. And, you know, and it, in that sense, you know, he was making music in an, in a unique way. I mean, people said to me, um, some of the Andy Warhol people, you know, maybe that he made art, he made music in the way that Andy Warhol created art. He just got the people together, had the idea and they did it all for him. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that's a good parallel. And I also think that there's sort of a parallel with the way Bowie talks about Ronson with the way Keith Richards talks about Brian Jones, that there's clearly some raw feelings there. And it's almost, I, I, you know, in reading the accounts and reading other people's accounts of the making of the man who sold the world album, it really does seem like Ronson could have gotten a songwriting co credit or two, you know, and that would have been a lot of money for him and, and a difference in status. And you wonder, you know, was it a business decision that, you know, because Bowie was very generous with songwriting credits with later collaborators like Carlos Alomar and Brian Eno and, you know, John Lennon. It's still pretty unclear what Lennon contributed to fame and, you know, but he gets a full songwriting credit. And, and uh, you know, so I kind of wonder if there's a little bit of guilt there on Bowie's side. Um, but again, so many people thought Ronson was, was the man behind, the, you know, the curtain. So, so there might be... Yeah, it, it's fun to speculate. Yeah, it's, it's complex, actually. And what's interesting is that even fairly late in life, um, Bowie wrote some captions from Mick Rockbook. And in there, he wrote about, I think, Teenage Daydream. And he wrote about how he sang Mick the solo or he kind of programmed the solo. And I remember reading that and thinking, yeah, I don't believe you. You know, and this is like a judgment call, isn't it? And then, but just knowing it wasn't the case, because knowing, you know, what David had done, the kind of melodies he came up with, you know, and knowing that sometimes he'd be very specific about what he wanted. But I just knew that that wasn't the case. And then, of course, I talked to Ken Scott and he said, absolutely, no, that just didn't happen. So there we are, David, who's this immensely creative person who's had all these accolades and still wants to claim a little bit more. But hey, you know, that's not a man bites dog story. That's a dog bites man story because just about everybody in rock and roll is like that. And, you know, as we age, we probably can't really remember that well anyway. We get a bit grumpier. And Bowie was often very, very noble, you know, more noble than others, actually. But he wasn't 100% noble all the time. Yeah, there still could be these, you know, like we all get when we're older and grumpier and people, somebody else has been praised just a little bit too much. We've all been there. You know, when we get yeah. something, then somebody else is there on the limelight and everybody else is saying to you, oh, weren't they great? Weren't they great? You know, you, your little voice inside you wants to go, what about me? Me, me, I'm great too. And, you know, David Jones was like the rest of us. What can we say? Yeah, yeah. and and I think uh, you you capture the source of the ultimate fissure between Bowie and Ronson and that Bowie never stopped being interested in new ideas, new musics, you know, and, and Ronson was a closed chapter by the, you know, time he didn't want to hear it. Yeah, true. He didn't want to move on. You know, it was working for him. He'd kind of made the leap. He'd gone outside of his canvas and he didn't really want to do it again. And you know what? Maybe he wasn't really that good at the kind of funky stuff that David was, um, thinking of you know mark pritchett who played with him was trying to do it as well and couldn't really do it either but you know i cared very deeply for me i think he was a genius but when i hung out with him in i think about 87 and he was playing 
um, with Ian Hunter, and they did a really good show at the Astoria. It was either the Odeon or the Astoria, you know, a really nice venue. And then I went to see Mick afterwards, and Mick was playing the same guitar. He had the same haircut, you know, that he'd had in 1972. He'd just not changed. It all worked for him. You know, why why change it? And he, he didn't want to, you know, and but David did, you know, so they were always going to move on. And I don't think Mick was really bitter in the way that people would have said they put words into his mouth. And, you know, when I spoke to him, you know, he wasn't bitter at all. He was he's a bit grumpy, you know, like whole blokes can be. Um, but it, it was a natural parting of the ways in in many sense. But but it it was messy. Those things always are messy because David had gone a bit crazy by then anyway. You know, he like anybody in the middle of that incredible intensity and kind of fan worship working at that kind of level, you know, it's going to fry your, your, your mind. And they were, they were fried, you know, and there's a lot of stuff going on as well. You know, he'd started doing cocaine by then. Angie was running off with all kind of people. So he was completely estranged from Angie early on, you know, and that was a shock to me, this kind of a crucial relationship and how that fell apart really, really early on during the first U S tour, you know? So, Oh, you know, my God, just the kind of craziness going around would fry anybody's um, neurons. And uh, I think that pretty much happened with the two of them. Yeah, clearly. And the third person in that triangle is Tony DeFries, um, the manager who executed the Ziggy Stardust is already a star concept. And and you make a pretty clear case that, that Bowie would not have be- become what he became without DeFries, but it didn't take too long for Bowie to figure out that he needed to part ways from this manager, and that was a very expensive escape. It was. And DeFries is a... Well, he's a complex person through various means. You know, I feel like I know DeFries quite well I've, and, and to be honest after a time i found him incredibly irritating incredibly pompous and uh you know with an enormous amount of self-aggrandizement and um so i almost had to take on the reverse of my own feelings because defeat was a bs merchant when it comes down to it but there was a time when that's exactly what bowie needed he needed to be in this little artistic cradle with defeat looking after him and and definitely with angie bowie as well you know she was a really key part of it i, I mean i see her as as kind of 50 50 with defeat some when he outlived the usefulness of one of them then he's outlived the usefulness of the other as well and they just created this this perfect space and with defeat you know he got him out of the contracts he used a device from Andrew Lou Goldham where, you know, when they made records for RCA, well, they weren't making them for RCA, they were making them for a production company. And then they basically licensed this stuff to RCA, which was quite um, an advanced technique at the time, although whether it actually ultimately benefited Bowie himself is, is open to question. You know, it certainly cost him a lot of money, like millions, tens of millions, you know. But there was a time he just... Everything was right when when Ziggy Stardust took off. People often say the stars were aligned. It was kind of like a military campaign. And what we do have to remember as well, actually, is that the people who supported Bowie at that point, many of them, not all, but many, Sounds Magazine particularly being big supporters, they said, he's never going to make it with this. It's just too calculated. It's like horrible pastiche. It sounds like Vera Lynn, you know, if he's going to make it, I hope he doesn't make it with the album. And of course, that album was Ziggy Stardust. So, hey, critics, what do they know? <laughs> yes, that's a recurring theme in music history. And I think it's I think it's great that you're bringing up Angela Bowie as his first <coughs> wife, because, yeah, you make it very clear that she was a full artistic partner, you know, especially in the creation of his look and in creating the sort of salon that they had at the the house they lived in when he wrote Hunky Dory and the scene they create, created around themselves. And then he moves on to a woman named Ava Cherry, who's an African-American backup singer. And she's sort of his muse slash partner for the next phase when he went R&B and pulled it off to a degree that no – I mean previous English rock stars, whole generations of them had tried to imitate American rhythm and blues. And Bowie – inhabited it in a way that nobody else had 
Yes, I mean, I, I felt myself very lucky to track down Ava Cherry. I mean, she kind of surfaced later on. I think she was in the Five Years documentary. And then I don't think she's speaking to too many people now. Um, but she'd been off grid for a while and, I, and she took a lot of tracking down. And I know that sort of is part of the adventure of the book, really, just spending months, you know, tracking people down, making it really easy for them to talk to you, maybe talking them for a bit, you know, and then coming back to them later on. And and so, you know, I loved Ava. She was, a you know, a really intriguing character. And then, yes, to map that whole period where he discovered Carlos Alomar and then um, and then Ava as well. But I mean, I've got to say my favourite stuff from that album is the stuff that's less R&B. You know, it would be something like Fame that's more abstract, you know, rather than, uh, you know, him doing cover versions of, of Knock on Wood or, you know, and stuff like that, which isn't to my taste. Um, but hey, you know, that's the thing about his catalogue. It's just so varied. And he was moving so fast. that if you didn't like that, something else, you know, was coming really fast up from the horizon. But um, but you know that in itself is is just a fascinating period because it's just like a a pressure cooker. And again, what he's doing, what what Bowie is doing, he he's moved from these kind of schooled musicians or who've got to work at stuff to suddenly being in a place where it's right. Let's go. Here's a riff. Come on, let's do it. You know, in the way that James Brown's musicians would have done it. And my God, you have to be on top of your game to do that. And he did, you know, and I think that's why he searched it out, because he knew it's going to be hard and it was going to stretch him. So, again, that period is very, very exciting. But of course, but he's moving really fast and he's getting a little bit crazy (laughs) along the way. Absolutely crazy. And you talk about that. But I want to talk about Carlos Alomar, too, because, you know, he was a legit you know, African-American, Puerto Rican funk guitarist. He had played with James Brown. He had played with Gamble and Huff. Uh, he met David Bowie doing a, a song for Lulu uh, on a session and and then haggled with DeFreeze and, and Bowie's team for a long time. He didn't come cheap. You know, he made sure he got his money. Why do you think he survived with Bowie for so long? I mean, was it that he kept a lower profile or was more adaptable what was the secret of carlos firstly i think is people often say that carlos was very buddhist (laughs) and um so he was very calm you know there's something very zen about him he's a lovely guy to hang out with and he just kept coming up with the goods all the time you know so i think in a way he was very ready to kind of sublimate his ego and um just kept coming up with the stuff although you know that didn't mean that there were there wasn't friction later on i mean i I can't remember where it was, whether it was in a Mojo interview with with Tony DeFries, where um, um, Davis says about Carlos, oh, well, he can, I don't know, take on airs. You know, he, he's a bit sort of regal or something. And I remember just finding that actually laughable because Carlos is kind of the most straight ahead guy. And often when people, you know, talk about other people, they project. So maybe there was a time... Yeah, I, they kind of did fall out a little bit. And, um, you know, so Carlos wasn't immune to all of that. And, you know, everybody has some ego. But ultimately, you know, Carlos is just a very calming, good guy and people enjoyed being around him. And so even in, you know, very painful tours later on, you know, people would go to Carlos and he'd keep things together. So I think... He was just a great band leader, you know, and um, and you could throw him into the middle of something. You could just play him a piece of tape. You could play him eight bars and say, do this in this key, then move to this key. And he could he could damn well do it, you know, and he was on it all the time. So ultimately, right mental attitude and he had the chops. You know, he really had the chops. So I guess that's why he lasted so long. Yeah, I mean, it's just um, and and, you know, I had heard of him and I knew that he was heavily involved with young Americans and fame, but I really didn't realize the extent of his contribution to the Berlin period and as the band leader on the tours and even into the mega tours in the eighties. And so, you know, part of the joy of reading this book and then really diving deep into Bowie's catalog has been discovering more aspects of Carlos Alomar than just the funk guitarist. But I wanted to also talk about the whole time he was with Carlos, maybe one advantage Carlos had over Mick Ronson was that Mick was the orchestrator and the lead guitarist, whereas Alomar was willing to take a back seat first to Earl Slick and then to Robert Fripp and then to Adrian Ballou. And, and you know, these lead guitarists came and went and Alomar stayed. That- yeah, I, I think that is part of it. And then 
Carlos's guests really were sort of melodic as well, you know. So really, yeah, maybe nobody else could have done the Fripp stuff on Heroes, but you could have got a lot of other good guitarists to do that good stuff over the top. I mean, we have got great musicians, people like Fripp and Adrian Ballou, but but it was Carlos came up with the melodies, you know. So when we listen to something like Heroes, you got to remember there's a little counter melody going all the way through. And I think it's Visconti who said how... It was when Carlos put that in, the song was really coming together, you know. And so when you've just, you're able to kind of scatter that kind of fairy dust over something and just give it that extra level, then, you know, that's far more intrinsic to the nature of the song. And that's what probably kept him in there. And yeah, I mean, I just hear his guitaring all the time. I love the sound of his guitar. And then even on Lust for Life, you know, there's things like success, all the guitar lines he's playing and they're just unique, you know, and and Carlos is embedded right into the sound. So all the experimenting they did with harmonizers and stuff like that, actually sculpting and not just the notes, but the sound of the notes, the soundscape, you know, Carlos was in there doing it along with them as well. You know, so you've got Brian Eno directing them and, you know, with little instructions on a, I don't know, on a chalkboard or whatever, but Carlos is in there and he's really building it up from scratch, you know, in a very, kind of musically intellectual way as well so you know he he had a lot going for him and he was a lovely guy he's a lovely guy as well yeah i want to get back to tony Visconti and brian eno but first i want to pivot back to the personas and we, we've talked about ziggy a little bit and the 60s personas but i want to talk about the thin white duke and i mean do you view like aladdin sane or diamond dogs as separate personas or just extensions of of the ziggy character I think they were just improvised. You know, Ziggy, let's remember, Ziggy was thrown together at last minute. It wasn't like, here's a Ziggy character, here's a costume I'm going to put on, and, and I shall inhabit this, and now I'm going to make an album. You know, Ziggy came at the end, you know. So, you know, the Ziggy album changed, and I think it had around and around the Chuck Berry song on. Can you imagine how that would have felt in that kind of context? Because it was more sort of 50s, you know, um, Vince Taylor kind of thing. And then, you know, the concept just came together bit by bit. And then Ziggy was kind of almost fully fledged, fully formed around the time, you know, they were finishing the album. And so through Diamond Dogs and Aladdin saying it was just, it was improvised, just a bit, bit modified, different haircut, you know. He, I mean, Diamond Dogs did have a very distinct aesthetic because he was working in a very specific, you know, mind space coming from George Orwell, etc. But it was developed, you know, it was just Ziggy in a, uh, Ziggy pushed in a different direction, you know, and then, uh, the, you know, then the Thin White, you know, the Thin White Duke was more of a, um, you know, more, was distinct from what came before. But yeah, I see Diamond Dogs and the Aladdin Sane has just been a kind of development. He hadn't really um, fully formed the persona in the way that he did with uh, the Thin White Duke. Yeah, and and the way you chronicle the creation of Station to Station, I mean, it's so hard to listen to that album, which is just I I've underrated it always. You know, I was into the Ziggy period, and I was into the Berlin period, and I saw that oh, well, this is sort of this transitional period between the R and B thing and the Berlin thing. But to me, and after reading the book and listening to the catalog in Moss, it's the fulcrum of almost his whole body of work. And it's amazing that he creates this amazing work of art when he's completely out of his mind on drugs and the occult and later denies having any memory of it. How does that happen? Well, it's not incredible, you know, and often you're worried when you're sort of trying to depict an ear about can you get into the center of it all? And then, you know, I did. <laughs> but then I found a guy called Neil Slaven who'd he'd met. Um, so when I said, you know, I got into the center of his madness, you know, because I found people who'd been in the house with him and we're doing, you know, huge amounts of cocaine with him, etc. And but but then I found a guy called Neil Slaven, who was a friend of mine you know, and um, a blues writer. And he he, he, he um, founded a blues magazine and he was friends with Mike Vernon. And Mike Vernon had produced the DRAM album and Neil had dropped in for the recording, the DRAM album. And um, when he dropped in to record, 
when he dropped in, Bowie was the young David was recording, please, Mr. Gravedig, and had spread out gravel on the floor and was kind of making weird found sounds out of gravel. And Neil Slaven thought, wow, this guy's a bit strange. But he was kind of a nice, ambitious, young, sort of straightforward, pushing ahead kind of dude. Well, then fast forward to 75 and Neil Slaven drops in on station to station and everything's crazy. There's mountains of cocaine. You know, they're recording all kinds of hours. You know, stuff's really going well beyond the edge um neil's there and he's you know i don't know if he's taken if he's trying out the cocaine and this his mate you know from london is in a really different place and yet when i said to neil was it a different guy did you really think he was lost and he thought about it for a while and he just said no it's the same guy at the center of it all David Jones was pushing himself to a different place in the way he had before, you know, like he'd push himself in the studio to always try and go for a first take or a second take. He found a, a mental space to inhabit when he was making his art. And on that album, you know, I think he wasn't really insane. I think he'd pushed himself right to the very edge. And yet there was still the superego in there just keeping an eye on stuff, I think. You know, so there was definitely a recognisable David Bowie in there, even if even if, you know, old mates could could be watching him and, and be scared. You know, at the same time, there was something pulling him back um, from the edge, whereas Iggy didn't stop at the edge. He went over. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a key distinction. And then, you know, and he follows that up. And I think I think. Reading the two books, Iggy and Star Starman back to back, it, it they sort of get intertangled in my mind, and so it. But I think you do a great job of conveying how, when David saved Iggy, and he really did. I mean, he pulled him up out of the gutter, and and brought him along on the station to station tour, and then produces the idiot. He was saving himself too. Mm. I think there's something very biblical, mystical about all of that. You know, you could write almost a therapeutic journal off the back of it, but often how, you know, saving other people, you are saving yourself. And But, I mean, you're saving somebody who thinks he's better than you, quite likely, and maybe you worry that he's better than you too. You know, so it's kind of like, if I really rescue him and he does really, really, really well, am I going to look as good? You know, so I'm a bit, you know, maybe you're even a bit worried about it too, but there's something beautiful about it. And, for both books, and I guess I approached, you know, the two books from a different um, perspective, you know, but for both books, that period in the middle was very special and kind of loving, you know, and I, I guess I remember even as a kid reading about what happened and listening to Lust for Life and buying it as an album and just thinking, whoa, you know, this is just beautiful, you know, and here we have something beautiful, somebody coming back from oblivion you know and with such love and energy and excitement and so getting to that point where the two of them were just both washed up and washed you know Iggy was washed out um to making that great stuff together it, you know it's a very beautiful period and, you know it needs to be said again you know songs like nightclubbing Bowie could have put nightclubbing on low it'd have been a massive hit can you imagine it you know look at yeah. how big it was for grace jones you know that was just a diamond of a song and obviously later on when bowie's not really writing any good songs you know you get to shades he gives that to iggy so david was fully conscious compass meant it at all time he made sure when he put the bills in that he got his fair share for the songwriting he billed iggy for the production time as well and that's i guess that's being fair isn't it it's not a gift you know i've yeah you know he billed him for his professional services at the end as well but but in a way it was loving and generous and puts i think his contribution to the cultural life of this planet the earth on a higher plane it, you know brings him something extra you know and because it doesn't really happen that much in in art you know where you do actually genuinely help somebody and although it's shaded it's nuanced he did genuinely help him and in the in the process you know definitely rescued himself too yeah and and that's uh, a theme through through the book i mean he nightclubbing wasn't the first hit that he had given away i mean he gave mott the hoople all the young dudes and rescued their career you know yeah. 
and uh, and then Lou Reed with you know producing Transformer and Lou Reed you know <laughs> talk about the biting the hand that feeds you know yeah tried to help uh tell the story about the fist fight with lou reed oh this is great because um ah oh, uh, i've forgotten the name of the guy playing um synth guitar on uh on ashes to ashes it just slipped my mind it'll come back to me in a couple of minutes but yeah um obviously david is has um produced transformer it's fantastic and for people who were there, you know, some people like me, when I was a kid, would say, well, Mick Ronson did all the work because he was down in the stu- on the studio floor writing all the arrangements. Well, hey, he did, you know, and that's a bloody great job. Who'd, who had the hardest job? David, because he was in the control room with, with Lou, who was playing mind games on him. You know, I, I think it was at one point, you know, there'd be people crawled on the studio floor in fetal positions because it was so difficult. And so, David, it was kind of like life psychiatry that he was doing with Lou. And uh, in the end, of course, he delivers them a hit. And then later on, I think in 1979, uh, they're all having um, they're all reunited. And Lou's been doing a growing up in public tour. He's been drinking a lot and he and they've gone out to a Chinese um a restaurant in in Chelsea and they're all chatting and you know Lou, Lou is really fulsomely kissing David you know oh, it's so beautiful to see you and then they're chatting and then Lou says to David well uh, yeah would can we work together again and David says to him yeah I will if you uh, straighten up your act and at that point Lou slaps him several times each time going nobody says that to me and then Bowie's, you know, bodyguard and Coco Schwab just bundled everything up and they just disappear. And, um, yeah, Lou was, you know, playing mind games on on everybody. And they did make it up later on. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> but but David didn't record it, didn't, didn't produce another album for him, you know. So, I mean, I think it'd be, it's, it's fascinating because, of course, people are always conflicted when you help other people and you know what david did with lou was so different from what he did with iggy you know he uh, it's a bit like when paul mccartney went to badfinger and kind of just made wrote a song for him and said just do it like that and it'll be a hit you know it's great when you can do that when people so on it and that's what david was doing with lou and uh, yeah i mean it's incredible when we talk about the transformation of ziggy stardust and everything else and at the same time he was you know, he was he was working on Transformer as well. And it's hard on a, a book, you know, because I would have loved to have had even more about Transformer. But you can't have everything about everything or you're not going to sustain the kind of momentum of the narrative. But my God, there's just so much there. You know, I haven't read the new De Curtis Lou Reed book, but I hope, you know, there's a lot on Transformer because I think, you know, the story they're making of that album in itself is epic. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that as well. And it's good that you brought up Coco Schwab because she was Bowie's personal assistant for many years, also his lover. And then I believe he willed her a few million dollars uh, yeah. on his passing. And so talk about her because she seems like sort of the successor to Ava Cherry or Angela Bowie as, you know, the muse partner. Well, well I think she was, but she didn't have the ego that they had, you know, so they wanted to have their name in lights, you know, not Ava so much, certainly Angie did, you know, I mean, I had problems with the legal read for Bowie. It was record breaking legal read, you know, legal read is when a, a lawyer goes through the entire book and they have quotes I had, and queries. I had 20,000 words of queries on that book. Wow. And one of the, and, and, and one of the constant queries was um, using the phrase attention seeking in relation to Angie. And they said it's a psychological condition. You can't keep saying she's, a, she, you know, attention seeking or, or, you know, describing your behavior as such. And it was kind of like I was thinking, well, how do I describe Angie Bowie without it's like describing the Pope without saying what his religion is, you know. Yeah. And then Coco was the opposite. She didn't seek attention. She was very, very intelligent, you know, very well read, very well schooled, but would, was prepared really to sublimate her life to him. You know, so when Bowie left her that money, it's because she she did risk, you know, she looked after him. She cared for him. Many other people had a problem with her because she was possessive and she was the archetype who you know, looks after a star and tells you that they won't be satisfied unless they have A, B and C. When if you actually spoke to the star direct, 
just a would have been fine thank you very much you know but she did she kind of rescued him and whether all that whole period of station to station certainly germany would have happened without her you know I doubt she was, you know, the right woman in the right place at the right time. And I guess, and this has only just occurred to me, you know, she had this European background. And where did he go, you know, to kind of find himself? He went to Europe, you know, not to Britain, this little island off Europe, sadly, now, you know, all the more estranged. <laughs> but, um, you know, Coco had this European sensibility, I think, you know, and she must have been part of that move to Europe. You know, there was Isherwood, there was Kraftwerk. Uh, you know, there was Connie Plank and all of that. And I'm sure that Coco was part of that too. And um, uh, what a shame that the one tribute record he made to it, Never Let Me Down, was so awful. Hey, <laughs> so now I've got to make some tough choices because I want to cover Brian Eno, but I, but I want to dive in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just have to skip Brian Eno. Um, but I want to talk about his sort of creative collapse in the 80s. You know, he, he has this incredible berlin period the great trilogy and then scary monsters really sets the table for superstardom and and you tell the story of let's dance i think really well of how he programmed nile rogers to produce him and you know they spent some time together and bowie's playing him records and telling him stories and and i thought you told that story really well what the heck happened after that well i guess at its simplest you know with with the whole EMI period, there's eager there, and he wanted to be like a really big star, and he wanted to prove himself as not being a kind of um, a cult musician or a left-field musician. He wanted to be mainstream, you know, like Mick Jagger was, you know. So that was the whole premise of the, the Let's Dance period. And yes, how he worked with Niall was incredible. You know, he gave Niall a lot of freedom, um, but kind of briefed him really well. And then Niall kind of did the whole job and prepared everything in, I guess, the same kind of way that Mick Ronson had done for Hunky Dory. And then, but having had a hit, it's a bit like when you're suddenly rich, then you suddenly are really careful of your money. You're, you're worried that somebody's going to steal it from you and you can't enjoy it in the same kind of way. So having had that kind of freedom and taken all those risks right up to that point, up to and including Let's Dance, and suddenly became risk averse. And that was never where he made his art. You know, he'd always... The one thing we've not really talked about is his instinctiveness, you know, so while he was very considered, you know, he'd he'd kind of map out the ground very strategically like a general would, you know, and said, we're going this way, we're going that way. But when we're on the battlefield, we just do whatever the hell comes into our head. And that's kind of how he worked. But then suddenly he became a bit of a control freak. So he's he's doing demos of his songs and then going into the studio to replicate the demo. Well, that very, very rarely works. You know, as anybody could testify, you might as well just release the demo. You know, it's always going to have more life to it. He'd always done stuff in first takes, you know, when it was fresh in his mind and then just go out and record it straight away. So that just that kind of mental freedom was gone and he put himself in a, into a straitjacket. And then as somebody who's very reliant on his collaborators and he was even more at risk, but yeah, and also he was working with collaborators who just weren't as um, as creative as some of the other people he had, you know. And with Carlos Alomar, you know, Carlos was definitely cheesed off because he was expected just to kind of replicate stuff on demos. I think he'd said to me, well, I'm just supposed to copy somebody who's imitating me, you know. And yeah. um, so just all the life had gone. But there was still stuff there. If you listen to, you know, Buddha of Suburbia from the early 90s when he's just doing a soundtrack and he's just not worrying about it too much even with the same collaborators that the music's great you know he should have re released that as an album and not tonight or or never let me down which you know really do suck <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know, I, yeah was, you know i never you know hey when you write a book really you're, you're lucky aren't you 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 know you get a bunch of money and you're spending months kind of tracking people down you don't know you're born really because it's all fantastic fun but hey listening to those albums and trying to kind of understand them you know it's that's that's no fun yeah <laughs> you know yeah. trying to work out a way through of trying to find something positive to say you know or, or just getting into the mental space to try and understand them you know they are awful albums and um I think we do have to, as fans, you know, as consumers, we have to retain our righteous eye and say, no, those are awful. There's no point in saying that bit's pretty good, you know, 
and some people do and good on them you know they'll say well that track's not so bad and that track's not so bad but but let's just point out you know absolute beginners that's just drop dead brilliant from that period because he did it in a real hurry and then shades which he wrote for iggy in that period he's drop dead brilliant so he could do it but he was just thinking too much yeah yeah and why didn't he bring back Nile rogers for the follow-up to let's dance well they kind of um he kind of did but he would never give him the same freedom and i think also maybe Nile was standing on ceremony a little bit too much as well, you know, so you can't go back. Can you really, you know, in life you can never go back and have the same people again and expect it to be the same, especially after a break, you know, so maybe he thought as well that Niall was um, taking a bit too much credit as well. Uh, It might have been a very small part of the motivation, but I think it certainly was a little bit of it, too, because, you know, Black Tie, White Noise, which he recorded with Niall. And it was one of many albums where, you know, the the PRs would say, oh, it's his best album since Scary Monsters. And it really wasn't great either. I mean, there are people who like it. Music's subjective. It's emotional. So I don't I don't feel that album. I don't really feel any of it doesn't work for me but i can see you know there are, there are inventive bits to it but nile rogers wasn't really given free reign on on that album and uh, for a number of reasons i think again because by then david was probably just a bit more risk averse and just being too much of a control freak and and i want to fast forward to the end i asked you when we talked about the iggy book you know have you thought about doing an update and to me it seems like the bowie book really begs for one even more than Iggy did because of this and the last five years documentary is just beautiful. And, you know, he put out two major albums and a documentary in the last five years of his life. Are you tempted to go back? Oh, okay. Well, um, so you haven't read the, the current UK version. Oh no, I have not. Okay. Right. It's got to cross Um, the sea. Okay. Well it is, it's, it's frustrating actually because my U S publishers didn't want an updated, you know, print version. And, uh, the UK ones were kind of gagging for it. It's just different businesses across the Atlantic, I suppose. So um, I'd updated uh, the Bowie book for the next day, and then I updated it again to take in Blackstar. And I spent a lot of time, you know, I, I, I spoke to all the guys from who worked on Lazarus with him, which I found very moving. And I guess if you've not got that on, um, you haven't got the kind of UK version of the book then you just go to my website where there's three consecutive stories on on Lazarus and you know the headspace that David was in at the time and and then Blackstar um you know there's a good amount of that I mean there's only about 4,000 new words but for me what was bizarre about Blackstar is my entire take on when David disappeared was that he'd always wanted this Houdini disappearance that's show business, you know, it's like yeah. Tony DeFries, that's show business, it's Hollywood, you know, how do you leave him wanting more, you just disappear and the stage is empty and there's a puff of smoke and like, wow, how cool is that? And I always thought that's what he did, he kind of engineered, after he had a heart attack, he turned it into a piece of show business and then what what better final act then to just make this music because you love making the music, you're not, you don't want to leave on nothing, but how can you make, how can you keep that central enigma going you know, you make these two secret albums again an act of immense showmanship you know world-changing showmanship really and you make those albums which have you know which also hark back to you know a lot of other great stuff but are but are in a different place and you're working with your old producer but with a, a new bunch of guys and that's going to stay with them forever and i think of that period as not just being about a kind of music that he's gifting to the fans. He's also part of a community. So the Lazarus people, they were part of a community too. It's kind of almost religious the way he went round each of those people, the Lazarus show and gave them a little memento, like a religious artifact. So it's kind of life changing for them as well. You know, Michael C. Hall, it's life changing for him. You know, it's kind of weird. So for me, it's after sort of writing a book on the guy and then, speaking to Donnie McCaslin and then uh, the people from Lazarus at the end after, you know, I spent quite a few years kind of living that life vicariously and somebody's not gone. It's pretty momentous, you know, so let's not forget also that the heathen album is a pretty good one, but um, yeah, 
that puts it on a different plane really to to disappear from the stage with those great artistic statements you know i think he partly did it because he knew that would put him that take him next level you know it's kind of like am i yes. Mick jagger am i as good as john lennon yeah I'm, yeah I'm pretty good i think this album's better than that you know he'd have you know, he was very conscious of what his chart positions were and all that sort of stuff. And even while he was dying, you know, he'd have been in pain. He'd have been sad, like all of us. He'd have been a bit scared. He'd have desperately wanted to, to see more of his daughter, you know, who was only, I guess, 15, 16. And at the same time, he'd have thought, yeah, I think this is going to work. I think this is good enough. And I think this might just let me edge ahead of John Lennon, you know. I think yeah. that, that will have been part of his thinking and it's engineered and he it's improvised, you know, like the best bits of life and, and how noble is that to go to the end and not lose the work ethic? You know, I think that's great, you know, because any of us, we are what we make to cut to an extent and, you know, he really did pull it off. And so whilst it's sad, for everybody around there's this kind of joy at his passing that he did such a damn good job. Yeah, it was an absolute triumph, and and I can't think of another rock era musician who's done anything comparable at the end of their life. I mean, you know, Mozart has Requiem, and 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 there's some painters I could think of that did some old age stuff, but nobody in rock and roll has gone back and done that, looking from the end of life back. And I I, I do think it's an amazing accomplishment. And my bad about not catching the update. It's so easy as an American to go to Amazon co.uk and get I've, I've done that for all kinds of obscure british things that i wanted to track down so i will absolutely uh, track down the updated edition of your book it, it, it really does i mean actually i felt the very first edition of the book felt frustrating because it we ended with a question mark and then the final edition the 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 first paragraphs of the final chapter are the ones from the existing final chapter. It just sort of all fitted into place. And, but then at the end, you know, I spoke to people like Donnie McCaslin and I went back to George Underwood, who was his mate in his first band. And we kind of talked through it all. I think we were, you know, there were definitely bits of tears in our eyes because we talked about it all when it was fresh and, and George had lost a friend. You know, it was so spooky. It was so circular. Even one of the guys from Hull who I knew, um, uh, John, the drummer, who was replaced by Woody Woodmansey, um, you know, Bowie texted him, you know, when he went to the premiere of Lazarus, you know, so it was just very, very spooky. And, you know, the the circle completed. So even the last line of the updated version is kind of, was in the early one. It just kind of fitted. I didn't even have to get into a different mental space. It was like all everything that happened before just kind of made sense, you know, why he disappeared. And then suddenly, you know, the, the wanting to do this Houdini disappearance. I mean, that's the name of the, um, the last chapter is the Houdini mechanism where he'd always been looking for this Houdini mechanism. Once he got to the top in 87, it was like, how do I exit? You know, what's my exit strategy? And, uh, life presented him cancer, you know, presented him with the ultimate, exit strategy and my god didn't he use it so well and so beautifully yeah it was it was absolutely brilliant and it's been just a, a real joy uh sharing you know your knowledge and love of music over these three interviews and and uh i hope to have you back again actually to talk about the portrait of the blues book if you're I, i'd love that actually because i've been spending more time with val wilmer recently he's an amazing photographer and fantastic writer who took the photos for that book and i've got to go and see you know i've got to go and see you next week because we've got it you know we're all getting old you know we've got to keep in touch with our friends um and um and so i've been thinking about that period quite a lot recently and find myself it's weird to depict a period where suddenly it's part of history you know it's weird when you yeah. spoke to all these people and they're not around anymore so it leaves you in a strange but kind of grateful you know mental place as well so i was very lucky to do that book and uh, in the same way the journey you know we're kind of tracking down all the bowie and iggy's friends you know i felt very lucky to just travel around the states and see all those guys so it was magical so yeah obviously sure i'd love to talk about that book so definitely awesome. for that one well we'll have you back again paul thanks again yeah. and this has thanks. been the let it roll podcast with paul trinket thanks very much thanks for listening 
Next week, Ed Ward returns for the first of two episodes discussing his biography of Michael Bloomfield. Be sure and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. Paul Trinka's David Bowie, Starman, is available from Little Brown and Company wherever fine books are sold. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done.